0: On this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, how to have hard conversations about third-party risks.
1: We used to always be asking for time and attention from that leadership. Now they're coming and asking us about our response plans and the impact of ransomware would have.
0: And why universities need to be more aggressive around modernization.
2: When you think about agility, how to be more efficient in higher education, to evolve and to innovate, modern IT infrastructure is kind of at the core, even though it's not visible for everybody.
0: I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is Cutting Edge, where we talk to the people making game-changing decisions in higher ed IT and online learning. This episode is brought to you by Dell Technologies. Continuing education professionals need more tech support, according to a recent survey from Modern Campus and the UPCEA. Universities are investing in continued and professional education as a revenue driver. But nearly 40% of those surveyed say they do not have access to metrics like real-time enrollment. More than half say administrative burden was the top barrier to expanding their programs. California Governor Gavin Newsom is asking for $100 million for cybersecurity at community colleges in his most recent budget proposal. Along with paying for compliance checks and risk assessments, this money would also go to updating the community college system's application portal. Apparently, the platform saw a surge of cyber attacks at the onset of the pandemic. Students at Fayetteville State University who land paid internships or jobs are highlighted on a 36-foot-long LED video wall in the student center. The wall of success is part of a years-long university strategy to connect hundreds of students with these opportunities and bolster career services. Find all these stories and more on edscoop.com. Managing cybersecurity risk with third-party vendors continues to be a challenge in higher ed. Brian Kelly, the head of Educause's cybersecurity program, discusses lessons learned through developing the HECVAT and highlights the conversations cybersecurity professionals are having with leaders outside of IT.
1: 2022, it seems like it's a year in and of itself, right? So one of the things that we're seeing is sort of the the, the external threats, or we see these third-party incidents that impact our campuses and, and, you know, more recently, things that are going on globally around the world that have uh, maybe a third party or a tertiary impact on our campuses. So really using this as an opportunity to engage with our EDUCAUSE members, with our campus leadership around what we can do, um, how we can use these global events to, to better bolster our cybersecurity posture understanding that a nation state may not attack our power plant on our campus, but if we don't have, you know, electricity to light our campuses, that's an impact, right? So while we focus on cybersecurity, there's so much of the conversation around broader threats and um, what we can do to prepare for those.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Uh, I'm so excited to dig into some of these topics, but first off, can you kind of Speak a little bit about the challenge of third-party vendors. Uh, some of the steps that the community has taken to better vet uh, some of these third-party vendors, and and some of the challenges that are happening right now. Uh, wh- what are some of the next steps?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great that's a great question. And we look at most recently, Okta was in the news, and that's a third-party vendor that many institutions use, right? And it's a it's a vendor in the space of identity in access management identity protection, right? So what that means is they help us all log in securely in our environment. So a really critical third-party vendor. And it was an opportunity where we all as institutions need to go back and look at vendor management. And ironically, it was a third party of Okta that led to their, uh, their incident, right? So it's sort of these layers, right? Third and fourth party um you know, potential risk. And one of the things that EDUCAUSE and, and the higher ed community have done really well over the last five or six years is developed this, this vetting tool, this what we, it's an acronym. It's a, some people love it. Some people think it's an ugly acronym. It's called the HECVAT, which stands for the Higher Education Community Vendor Assessment Toolkit. And it's really taken off with our institutions, our member institutions and higher ed in general, not only EDUCAUSE members using it to vet the security risk of those third parties that they interact with. And if you think of most campuses have, you know, many, many third parties that they're working with. And what this allows for is a standardized set of questions that the vendor, the solutions providers can can answer. And then it can be shared amongst multiple campuses. So we're all um, asking the same questions. We're all getting the same answers. And through community, we can help reduce that risk in some degree so sort of standardizing on risk assessments is one of the things that um, you can do um you know identifying documenting whether whether you use the heck or another another instrument for that third-party risk is really important um reviewing it annually so we've gotten really good about um when we onboard a new third party or new a vendor or supplier our procurement officers our business officers are asking the right questions, but making sure too, that we're going back and addressing uh, vendors, legacy vendors that we've had in our institutions for a long time and understanding sort of that supplier life cycle and including sort of those annual third-party reviews in that life cycle process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We'll get uh, back to Okta and and some of the other uh, events of the the month, it moves so fast. Um, but I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the heck that and and some of the lessons learned, I think, was it the five year anniversary or there was an anniversary for it right.
1: It 2021 was the fifth year we're into our sixth year it's uh it's a beyond toddler now it's 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 growing into <laughs> it's, it's going to be school age soon
0: school age soon. So yeah. uh, speaking of, of school age, what lessons um, have have you learned and, and what are some of the pieces of feedback? Because obviously a tool like this also invites a ton of feedback from CIOs and, and the people responsible for making these decisions. Um, what are some of those pieces of feedback or uh, I guess as well, what are some of the questions that need to be asked or are highlighted in the HECVAT that have been particularly useful?
1: Wow. So, it, you know, the lessons learned is, is really that the, when it's built by the community for the community, it really gets traction, right? So it's a collaboration between Educause, Internet2 and REN ISAC. And, and really, uh, our institutional members make up the core of that collaboration, so the folks that, that build it, that add to it, that maintain it, are all volunteers across those three organizations um, that put countless hours into it. And, you know, the, the adoption of the HECVAT, I think, reflects both the effort that those volunteers have put into it. And that it reflects what the community is looking for. So most recently, uh, the version that we published at the end of 2021, the version 3.0 added accessibility questions and the intent is not to replace a, a VPAT or, you know, to, but just to have some basic questions that vendors should answer. And we're also looking at adding Potentially a privacy tab or some standardized questions around privacy. Um, and we, as it turned five, we also had to go back and update uh, the questions to reflect where, you know, as you said, things change rapidly just over a period of a couple of months. So, so, over the course of five years, making sure the language and the questions reflect. Uh, best practices for identity and access management. So the, that was reflected in the latest update. Um, and, w- and one of the things that we're focused on and the, the team, the core team of volunteers is focused on for 2022 is is better documentation and FAQs for the vendor community that's being asked to f- complete these these HECVATs. So um, it was developed by and for higher ed cybersecurity professionals and we were so laser focused on developing a questionnaire that worked for us that we might have missed the, the really obvious part of it, it has to be has to work for the folks that are that are being asked to fill it out alright so those those companies, so our focus this year is really to help with. Um, the documentation working on workshops and webinars and explainer videos for um, those ed tech vendors and suppliers that are. That are now seeing the hex requests come into their 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 um, their companies, and we want to make sure they understand the value of it and the benefit of completing it. So that's our that's our focus for for the remainder of 2022.
0: I what I'm hearing a lot out of these conversations about how to respond to these fast moving threats are things like the hex having these policies and procedures in place so you're doing the groundwork ahead of time. Um, can you speak a little bit to response, especially when you've gone through your steps in selecting your vendors and, and you have your team in place, maybe you've done some planning. Um, but these, they're so fast moving. We were emailing back and forth when, uh, Okta came out. Um, and I mean, and a a couple people and, and it was just day by day what, what was happening. Um, could you talk a little bit about the importance of planning and, and just practicing when it comes to uh, incident response, especially with threats like these that evolve so quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that planning, that rehearsing in, in community, right? Are probably the three things, right? So staying a current on what's going on. So a lot of consumption of, of media and reporting and what's being reported in the mainstream media, but also what's happening in sort of open source threat intelligence. So, Many, many of our community members are doing that. They're participating with REN ISAC, and, and I know you know Kim Milford, the executive director over at the REN ISAC, and they're doing such a great job of sort of sharing that in a vetted, sharing threat intelligence, uh, vulnerability intelligence in a vetted, closed environment where members can can reliably trust the information they're getting. And then taking that back and using that in their institutions, um, our EDUCAUSE community uh, connect platform, our community platforms are where folks are collaborating and sharing ideas and clearly not sharing to the extent of that sort of classified, pseudo-classified information that we see in the REN Isaac world, but best practices, right? And we talk about planning and sharing what those incident response plans are. And I think that helps with equity between institutions that maybe have more mature incident response plans. They're able to share and collaborate with uh, institutions that might be... uh, not as far along in that journey. Um, So that collaborative nature is something that, you know, Internet2, REN ISAC, EDUCAUSE really build because that's how you stay abreast, right? How do we, how do we stay current? How do we interpret, you know, uh, what's being reported as an impact to our institutions? The the practicing. So what we see a lot is is we call tabletop exercises or exercising those incident response plans. Um, I had an Air Force career prior to and overlapping a little bit of my higher ed um, experience. And really, that's something that the military does really well is sort of going through scenario based exercises. And it's really um, come to higher ed now in, in the cyber uh, realm, uh, Kim and her team at the REN Isaac do these blended threat workshops, which are excellent. Um, we support her in, in that mission, and it really helps practice, to your point, um, what do we do during an incident? Um, and I think what we've seen of late with, uh, with the OCTA breach is sometimes the, the threat actor tries to control that narrative as well so that's a new thing that we have to incorporate into our our incident response plans and our corporate communications plans is is that what we're doing um, on our plan might be impacted but what the, why the what the have is doing um at the same time
0: and around that community piece uh, just kind of a, a fun question for you here Um, probably out of some not so fun conversations, but, um, can you talk a little bit about as you're having these conversations around third parties and, and some of managing some of the risks there, what are some of the pieces of advice or, or some of the insights that have stood out to you in these conversations? What's something that you heard in the midst of a conversation and you said, Whoa, that that's something that I'm, I'm going to bring to the next table I'm at.
1: Yeah, I, I think it really is the, the sort of the interest that we're seeing from our our, our governing bodies and in our institutions, right? So the presidents, the provosts, our board of trustees really engaging um, with the cybersecurity professionals on our campuses in a way that maybe pre-pandemic, pre sort of the, the sort of changes in global cybersecurity threats hadn't asked um, where we used to, always be asking for time and attention from that leadership. Now they're coming and asking us about our response plans and the impact of ransomware would have. So I think it's really helped, you know, that's sort of the wow factor is that, you know, our institutional leadership is, is aware of the threat now and really engaged with um, our cybersecurity professionals. And it's something that I say often, and I always give credit to David Sherry at Princeton, who I believe is the first person that, that said this. Is around culture of cybersecurity or information security in general for years was the office of NO. We would say, no, you can't do that, or no, that's a risk, or no, you know, you're not doing it right. And he said, we really had to shift our culture to be the office of no, of kno And I think that really the cultural change started maybe a little bit before the pandemic, but it really took traction as we saw cybersecurity enable our business, our our business of education to continue through the pandemic. And I think that those those little tweaks have gotten us to where to your point, you know, what's the most impactful conversations that we're overhearing around cybersecurity? during an incident or during, um, you know, something as newsworthy as the, the most recent breaches that our leadership's paying attention, right? And that's that's something that we we always advocated for. And it's, you know, for better or worse, it's risen at a, at a global level. Um, everybody is sort of aware of cybersecurity now in ways that they might not have been, you know, three to five years ago.
0: Right, uh, speaking to that, going from no to no, and, and communicating with with leadership. I, I wanted to ask what are some of the ways to really connect with leadership on on aspects like third party contractors? there's there's a lot of moving parts there. and uh, one of the things I really like to learn about is is how, people um, from the IT side or the cybersecurity side communicate some of the importance or, or some of the nuance when it comes to these kinds of things?
1: It's being, you know, constantly communicating, you know, with, with your business partners, whether that's the CFO or your procurement officers and, and really having dialogue. And I think it's also important that cybersecurity professionals understand, you know, the language that is being used by the audiences they're pitching to. We, we tend to be geeks. We tend to be acronym heavy. We tend to uh, you know, use, you know, not fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but sometimes we're not putting those risks in terms that our, our leadership can understand. So I think that strategic advocacy, that sort of being viewed as an enabler um, is key. And really helping to translate, you know, there's so much, um, you know, about, you know, you said how the time moves. I think it's about two weeks now that that Biden's office put out a statement on cybersecurity. And I think it was late on a Friday afternoon. And it it was a lot of what does this mean to our members? And in really those conversations, back to my point around critical infrastructure, that while our institutions may not be in that space, if transportation's impacted, it impacts our students' ability to, to, to come and go from campus. If food or water supply is impacted. So we, ha- we have to spend a lot of time in sort of translating and communicating what those threats are, what the potential impact uh, to our campuses is in a way that relates, it's relatable to, to a, a president or a provost, relatable to a board um, in, in a way that isn't, you know, sort of the, the sky is falling, and there's there's always the threat. But you know, what are we doing? What are we taking as far as steps to mitigate? How are we practicing and preparing? All of those things need to be communicated all the time, not just not just in the time of crisis.
0: No, that's a I I think that stream of communication is uh, something that I'm hearing a lot about, and just keeping that constant back and forth. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk a little bit about this and for keeping me in the know.
1: Anytime. Glad to be here and glad to talk with you as always.
0: You can read more about cybersecurity planning in higher ed at edscoop.com. Again, I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Colleges and universities are trying to find the right balance to support on-campus, remote, and hybrid instruction. But the need for adaptability has never been greater. Ernand Lundono is the former chief technology officer for Barry University. He's now a strategist for Dell Technologies. Lundono tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash about what he's seeing across the higher education IT landscape.
2: So there's a few things that have been happening for a while now, trends when it comes to higher education and IT, and they began before the pandemic. And I say this because we know now the pandemic put a little bit of pressure on higher education, but some of those things started earlier. You know, there's things like consumer IT, right, how the everyday consumer experience affects teaching and learning and students and faculty and their need and desire to kind of be served in a more dynamic and flexible way. So that's affecting higher education and some of the issues that we're seeing. You probably are familiar with Educause. Educause publishes every year a set of issues they get from across higher education in North America, a top 10 list. I'm just going to mention a few, but there's cyber everywhere. Are we prepared? There is that theme about evolution. Will higher education evolve or become extinct? There's a lot of pressure from different places coming to higher education. A very important one, digital faculty for a digital future. And that's pretty much connected to the, the way that I open my remarks today. And that's related to how do we serve students where they are? How do we create dynamic experiences for teaching and learning so that it can happen in a more organic and natural way. So those are kind of some of the things that you know I'm seeing and all of us are seeing in higher education as some of the issues.
3: Well, the Educause list obviously covers a lot of territory. So in that light, given the resource constraints that colleges and universities face, what's the business case for modernizing their IT infrastructure more specifically?
2: Yeah. Listen, you know, when you think about agility, when you think about how to be more efficient in higher education, and I just mentioned a lot of pressure on higher education to evolve and to innovate, modern IT infrastructure is kind of at the core, even though it's not visible for everybody. If you think about platforms that are necessary to run the business of teaching and learning, if you don't have these modern platforms, it's probably very difficult to create these modern experiences. And I'm thinking of things like, how do you access your streaming content today if you're a student or if you're faculty? It's very simple. It's a very simplified process, and that doesn't happen with old technology. It happens with newer technology. And that's kind of the trend now. How do we simplify the experience? How do we create less friction so that faculty and students can really spend time on the main mission of higher education, which is teaching and learning.
3: Well, and then how are technology companies like Dell Technologies making it easier for colleges and universities to deploy and finance infrastructure upgrades and provide students and faculty the equipment that they need and do so more securely?
2: Yeah, I think that's an amazing question because yes, the technology exists, but how does an institution of higher education get access to it? understanding that budgets in higher education are not the same as budgets in other verticals and in other industries. And so that technologies, we're really mindful about that. And, and we do a host of things, anything from creating different consumption models, how do we offer technology to be consumed you know so there is flexibility do institutions of higher education want to do this as a service for example and at least in a leasing fashion do the institution of higher education want to acquire the technology as a capital purchase all of these things you know are possible through Dell financial services so we're very in tune with kind of the needs of higher education and we are in the forefront of creating the different options through Dell Financial Services and to our technology teams for different consumption models and different financing models so that institutions can really have different options when they need to access these technologies.
3: Well, Hernan, can you talk about some examples where those types of modernization programs are giving colleges and universities kind of a more competitive advantage with students and faculty?
2: Certainly, we have a very good recent case, the case of University of Texas at San Antonio. This is an institution with 34,000 students, and it's an institution where we saw the convergence of different problems affecting the institution in in different places. And some of those places were, for example, their high-performance computing practice, which supports, obviously, the researchers, was not working optimally. And the reason for that was, data access was a problem. Their storage system was a legacy storage system. And and the time that it took for researchers to access the data and the actual high performance computing to do the transactions of data was taking forever. And that was affecting obviously research and what scientists at San Antonio and that university Called Time to Science. And, you know, super important when you're doing research. There was another problem with uh, their main uh, management platforms the student information system, the uh, human resource uh, and financial management platforms, also in legacy infrastructure. And, and the interesting problem here was when it came time for registration and you see an influx of activity around you know when everybody's registering these platforms because of their backend infrastructure being legacy they were crashing they were having um outages and students were were being affected there were some other problems with their course catalog and archival system so all of this in a compound fashion then presents a very good case for something drastic needs to be done, and that's where kind of we came in. We helped University of Texas at San Antonio kind of investigate and understand that problem, and we proposed uh, solutions around some of the of our very dynamic platforms, like for example hyperconvergence, the use of VMware Cloud Foundation, you know our very popular power scale platform. And basically, what we did is we kind of converged all of these workloads in a way that. It was all under a single platform, very integrated. Obviously, management of the platform allowed for anything from isolating workloads so that the researchers could do what they needed to do isolating the data sometimes for regulatory compliance and and even for security. And in the case of registration, which is an activity that takes place every semester, and universities see this peak of activity, very elastic platform that was able to scale up when the registration time came. Overall, what you gain, and if you go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, what this solution brought to University of Texas was essentially an environment where there was an increased amount of agility and the highest
3: operational efficiency. Well, it certainly sounds like a win-win for everybody. So thank you for sharing that example. Lastly, what's on the IT horizon that higher education leaders should keep an eye on as they continue to map out their investment strategies?
2: Yeah. Well, listen, the list is certainly extensive. There is kind of a near-term list of technologies that are affecting higher education now, and there is obviously some some that are long-term. I'll say near-term, anything related to artificial intelligence is certainly top of mind, and artificial intelligence, even though has been on the playbook for a while, the evolution is fast. So there is new things that come out in the artificial intelligence wave, new capabilities, uh, new advancements, certainly one that everybody needs to keep in mind. AR VR mixed reality was kind of came up a few years ago. It was kind of uh, maybe on pause and now we've seen an acceleration and everybody kind of can guess why pandemic virtual Uh, meetings, hybrid ways of doing business kind of brought this renewed sense of how do we interact, how do we interface away from the physical world in a very efficient way. So ARBR, it's going to be here. It's here to stay. There's a lot of advancement. You know, on the horizon out there, uh, but we know how things go in technology. Quantum computing, certainly it's one that we're still kind of in the midst of understanding uh, not so much what quantum is, but maybe more how do we apply the concepts of quantum computing to solving problems and to creating new technologies. Artificial intelligence went through kind of a similar case where it, it kind of plateaued for a while and there was not much advancements and then it was a point where he just took off. And we believe uh, quantum computing is kind of this similar case. And obviously when that goes away from the kind of the plateau state and it starts exponentially growing, then we'll see some newer things that perhaps some of us cannot even imagine at this point. I'll, I'll, I will highlight those as the main ones that everybody should keep, keep an eye on.
0: The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com as well as everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamforth.